disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. While this proposal pleased the whole group, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and the large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, thank you to Steve and Ethan for reading our scripture this morning. It's one of my favorite passages that comes out of the sixth chapter in the book of Acts. But uh, for all of us today, we're, we're in our series on uh, six questions every church should ask. And we come to one today that is uh, a great one. How should we live? How should the church exhibit itself to the world? How should the community around the church perceive the church? And how should, how should we as individual people, how should we live our life? What difference does it make how you live your life and how I live my life? How should we live? How should our lives individually, but then collectively as believing people, a community of faith, how should that impact the greater community around us? How should we live? And what will the community see of us? And not only see of us, but understand of us and then experience who we are as a community of people. How should we live? I love that. You know, I was thinking about how there is always, uh, there's like, there's always like a first and a last. There's a beginning and there's an end. When you think about maybe sporting events, there's like the, the opening time, there's like the first quarter of a football game, and then there's the last quarter of the football game, unless it goes into overtime, but there's a beginning and an end. Uh, with, with school, if you're a student, it's like the first day of school, if you remember that from being a little kid or whatever, you'd go, wow, the first day of school, there's excitement and energy and all that. But there's also the last day of school where you're like, there's also excitement. You're like, I'm, we're done. All right, good. And then there's like summer vacation has a beginning and an end, doesn't it? It's the, the first day of summer vacation and the last day of summer vacation. 
could be a new job for you. It's your first day on your job. Perhaps it's the last day of your job. Hopefully not a pink slip, but maybe it's retirement for you. There's kind of a bookend of that, the beginning and the end, the first and the last parts of things. It could be a courses of a meal if you go to a nice restaurant. Sometimes Gene and I will go to a restaurant and uh, the first course is okay. Um, we're really interested in the last course. Uh, you know, we like the dessert part, and uh, especially Gene. And sometimes we'll go in and Gene will say, all right, what's for dessert? She'll ask that right up front. And if it's something that, like, she doesn't want to miss out on because they might, run, want, they might run out, she'll go, well, why don't you just save that for us? In fact, why don't you just bring that first? How many of you have ever done that had dessert first? If you haven't, do that sometime. You'll forget the rest of the meal, but it'll be great. But sometimes it's the, the first or the last course of a meal along the way. Maybe it's the waking up hour in the morning and then the drifting off to sleep at night. It's that kind of sense of closure. Perhaps it's swimming laps in a pool, the first lap until your last lap when you get out. Or scenes in a movie. Or years in a book. Or years in a life. Or years or chapters in a book. Jean likes to read. I mean, Jean's a great reader, my wife, and she uh, was a history major in college. She loves history. She likes all kinds of books. She reads mysteries and suspense stuff and historical stuff and all kinds of stuff. And we'll be sitting on the couch, and she's got a book open, and she's reading, and, and, and I'll look over at her, and she's got a new book, and she's into this book, and, and I look over, and she's reading, and then I look over a couple minutes later, and her fingers are in the book over here, but she's flipped back over here. Anybody with me? She's at the back. She's reading. She's reading like the last couple paragraphs of the book. If it's a mystery, I'm like, how can, who else does that? You're crazy. Why do you do that? It just drives me nuts, and she knows that. And it's a, because to me, it's like you've, you've got the beginning and you've got the end, and the author is working so hard. Am I shouting? The author is like working so hard. The author's working so hard to develop the plot, right? I mean, he's like placing in the certain ideas and themes along the way and the development of the characters, and, and, and you just get absorbed into the flow of the story, and you're like entrapped and brought into that, and he's walking you through the process of getting you to the end so that when you do get to the final chapter, there's like those aha moments, or there's that, oh, as it wraps up, and it kind of, and it comes together. And so he's developed this theme all the way through. But what happens is like, if you start with the first and you jump to the last, what happened in the middle? Where all that great stuff happens, all of that development and the flow of the story, you've missed out on a lot of it. I just think, wow, that's just kind of a crazy thing. Have you ever caught yourself saying, usually in response to some, someone calling out to you, hey, I'm in the middle of something. I'm in the middle of something. Usually it's in response to something that like you don't want to be bothered with or somebody's trying to jump into your time and you want to be left alone. But you say, hey, I'm in the middle of something. You know, somebody calls out and says, you know, the lawn needs to get cut. You know, or, you know, you need to pick up all of the laundry and get it into the laundry room. And I'll go, I'm in the middle of something. I'm watching the ball game. I'm in the middle of something. It's important to me, right? We're in the middle of something. We're all in the middle of something. Life is like that for all of us. No matter what's happening in your life and in mine, we're in the middle of life. And God is in the middle of life with us. Friday, I got a phone call from Jean, and she said, Kaylee, our, our daughter who's in New York, Kaylee's been in a car accident. And she's okay, but her car's totaled. 
Well, I can't go, you know, don't, I'm in the middle of, I'm playing, I'm working on my message. I can't, no. Like immediately, there's immediate responses to stuff. We're all in that. I mean, there are things that happen in our lives. We didn't design it that way. It's not the script we would write, but we're in the middle of it. So how is it that we live life in the middle of stuff? How do we do that? How do we find our way in the middle of challenging situations in our life? Because we all have them. We're all in it right now. Wouldn't take you but a second to list two or three or four things that are really essential that are going on in your life right now that you go, not sure exactly how I'm going to get through this right now. Or this is a bit overwhelming to me. I'm in the middle of it. How do, how do we get through being in the middle of stuff? We're right in the middle of it. I love that, that God is smack dab in the middle of your life and mine. God isn't distant or out there or wandering around and hoping maybe you'll make a connection with him. No, God is smack dab in the middle of your life and mine. He cares exactly about what you're going through and what I'm going through. We're in the middle of it. And there's kind of a balancing act here. Because on the one hand, on the one side, there are the challenges that can really be uh, overwhelming to us. The difficulties, things we didn't choose to do, but we're facing those in our lives. On the other hand, the other hand is how do we engage in, in, in the kind of positive reinforcement and resources to help carry us through? How do we maintain and really develop those stronger characteristics that help us and habits that help us in the middle of life? So that we're not overwhelmed on the other, on one hand, but we have resources and a connection on the other side that can really help us to stand fast in the middle of things. My first car was an Unbam. It was an Unbam. It was a Sunbeam Alpine, but it lost several letters. So it was just an Unbam. So we called it the Unbam. And that's what it was. It wasn't an expensive car. It was a sports car. And it, uh, you know, had four wheels. And, and that, was, that was about as good as it gets. But it, it you know, and it, it, uh, it was my first car. I spent all the money that I earned that summer to buy this car. So you can imagine, didn't cost all that much. But I mean, this car was, uh, one of the things about the car was that when you were driving it, what I discovered is that when you decelerated, when you took your foot off the gas pedal, and you started to slow down, it would automatically shift out of second gear into neutral. Okay, it was a standard transmission. It just did that on its own. And so what you had to learn was, and that can be, that can be challenging if you're going around a corner and you're holding onto the gear shift and you're holding it into second gear, but that's what you needed to do because if you didn't, you went into neutral and then you're kind of floating free. Then you're kind of just flying at that, like the will of God right there. So it's kind of like what you, so what I had to learn was I had to develop a sense of knowing that whenever I was downshifting and was going to take my foot off the accelerator, I had to at the same time keep my hand tucked on that gear shift and hold it into second gear. I had to develop a habit so that I could stay on track, so that I didn't lose control so that the car would stay and maintain. Sometimes there are some things in our spiritual life that we must do. We must hold tightly onto them. We must hold them in place. Like that gear shift, we have to develop spiritual habits that we hold on to those things tightly so that life doesn't get out of control. And we're flying aimlessly without help or resources. 
because we don't want to live life that way. We don't want to get out of balance because if we fly to the other side and get out of balance, I think we become what I would call, we begin to live with a kind of a dangerous reactive mode. And, it, and the reactive mode is when we just react to everything that comes at us. We're not proactive, we're reactive. We react against everything. It's like we ward off everything that's coming our way. Rather than having a way to handle those things and some resources that will help us, we become easily overwhelmed when we're in that reactive mode. The next little thing just becomes more and more challenging to our lives. How do we work through that overwhelming sense and stay connected to spiritual support systems that will help us to get through those challenges? How do we do that? How do we not lose our touch and grip with God so that we can work through even some of the most challenging things in life? Well, I've asked Tina Patton if she would come and share with us a little bit about her life and dealing with challenges. So, Tina, great. Hi. Again, my name's Tina, and I've attended this church for about 12 years now. I sing on the worship team, and I may look new to some of you because I stopped singing on the team for about a year and a half and recently got reinvolved. I grew up in a small town in Kansas, go Royals, and my life was pretty small town normal. My life started out quiet, but I've had a lot of middle. So God gives us experiences. He refines us to make us into better, smarter people, people who can go through trauma and live to share that trauma with others so they too can have hope. I was married about 14 years. At the start of the marriage, there were red flags, but I just interpreted it for quirkiness. As the years continue, his control in separating me from family and friends became more prominent. Some physical, but mostly emotional and verbal abuses became life as I knew it. We adopted a son, and I was forced into being the sole breadwinner of the family. His being home eventually led to more drinking and more unchecked behaviors. The abuses were growing more intense for myself and our son. During the last three years of the marriage, the emotional and verbal abuses became extremely intense. The drinking hit an all-time high. I started to Al-Anon, and he vowed to quit. One day, he just threw all the bottles in the trash. What that revealed to us, though, is that he was drinking to self-medicate. And once the alcohol was gone to help level the personality, life spiraled out of control. There were all-night rages, and we lived in a constant state of fear. We divorced about seven years ago. The last seven years have been counseling, court dates, lawyers, medical expenses for a severe ADD and learning disability diagnosis for our son, and just trying to pull back and heal our lives. At the height of some of this trauma, I pulled out of everything except taking care of my son, myself, and trying to save our home. During this time, I also lost a good friend to breast cancer. I lost my mom. Then my dad plummeted more into his dementia. And then my best friend lost her 30-year-old daughter to lupus. I also lost my job, and I started my own business. Quite honestly, I didn't know how I was going to make it some days, and every day was a siege in survival. I look back now, and I can see that God provided the path. I started a support group, and God provided the very best counselor to help me get through the divorce. 
At one point, some friends from church came and helped me paint the inside of my house. Once it was repainted on the inside, I sat down and bawled. It felt like Jesus was washing over me a new start, a fresh coat of paint. It only took them a few hours of hard work, but it reformed my soul. They will never know the impact that made on my life, and I could never thank them enough. Some days in the height of the madness, I would hear the song redeemed. For some reason, that song really touched my heart. I would stand downstairs in my living room when I was home by myself, and I would sing that song at the top of my lungs. Arms completely open to God, I would feel his comfort. I had a close core of friends and family that I could depend on. My very best decision was having a professional counselor. Family and friends have good intentions, but to have a partial, unbiased opinion was very helpful to me. God also provided monies when I needed it. Court, lawyers, medical bills. It took every penny of my life savings. God knew I would need it, and he had provided it for me. And when it was all gone and I didn't know how I was going to pay the mortgage, he provided again. A wonderful woman in our church that had struggled being a single mom to several kids and had to go through several years of survival herself said to me, you will go years in struggle, and then one day the struggle stops. I clung desperately to those words. They gave me hope. So I'm telling you today that there is hope. Listen to music that moves you. Get into a support group. Those people are going through the same things that you're going through, and they may be able to give you some insight. Go to counseling. Let your family and friends in. I lived with many secrets. Secrets only allow dysfunctional behaviors to flourish. Most of all, trust and believe in your heart that God will see you through because he will. You may not feel it or see it working at the time, but all things do come together for good for those who love the Lord, and I'm a living example of it. And one thought that I thought of after I wrote this is, and learn to forgive yourself. God has an abundant grace, and we should have grace for ourselves. God says in James 1, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have it all have it full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given from him. So God, I count it all joy. Thank you for your steadfastness, for now I can become more of who you are asking me to be. I want to pray for Tina. Jesus, I thank you so much for Tina's life and for her courage, for her leaning on you in challenging times when you didn't seem to be there, for providing her with resources of people and direction and wisdom, for finances, for friends. God, for your resource of yourself, I just pray you continue to walk with her, continue to grow her deeper. May she be not only an example, but a support person to many others who need you to stand with them. So God bless Tina's life, I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you, my friends. All right. Takes a bit of courage to do that. I love this chapter in chapter 6 of Acts that uh, 
Ethan and Steve read for us this morning. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it talks about one of my very favorite people in Scripture. It talks about the person of Stephen. And the reason I chose this passage because it really does have to deal with a person who, who has really sought God's healthy habits in their own life. If we look at this passage and we only saw the beginning of Stephen's life and the end of Stephen's life, it would read something like this. The beginning. The disciples said it would not be right for us to wait on tables, so they chose Stephen. The close would read like this. And they dragged him off out of the city and began to stone him. After that, he fell asleep or died. That would be the close. But what about the middle of Stephen's life? There's a beginning and there's an end in Scripture in the story here. But what about the middle of his life? What does is, what is God's Word reveal to us about this particular person and what we can learn from his life? Well, if we look at it, the middle of his life, if we look at his character, this is what we see in verse 5. It says, Stephen, a man full of faith, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Full of faith and the Holy Spirit. In verse 8 it says, A man full of God's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs among all the people. Wow. In verse 15 it says, And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What an incredible guy. A person of faith, a person of trust and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. A person of grace and power who did miraculous signs, who cared for people. But one of the most important and impressive things to me about Stephen is his willingness to serve God at what we might say is kind of a menial task. Yet he decides to serve Whatever in whatever way he's needed. If you want to read Acts 7, which is the following chapter, it is a wonderful, wonderful chapter, which is really Stephen outlining and speaking to the whole group to which he's being uh, accountable to. And it's really, a, it's really a synopsis of the Old Testament and the movement of God. So if you want to catch on to what God's doing in the Old Testament, read chapter 7 of Acts. It'll really bring you through this whole section with Stephen. But if we look at chapter 6 again, here's the situation. This, this new community of believing people, there is an issue of inequality towards some of the widows. The Greek widows and the Jewish widows are not being distributed food equally in the care for them. And so we find that there is some division and tension and dissension. Imagine that, dissension and division in the church. Can you imagine? That's a joke. That's a joke. Can you imagine? Sure we can. But the disciples say, we must give ourselves to the ministry of the word. So they choose a group of people to serve and care for this very practical need. The care for the distribution of food to the widows in the community. And that proposal uh, pleases everyone. The outcome is this. The outcome of this group taking on this practical issue is that the word of God spreads. The gospel expands. The kingdom grows. 
For Stephen's part, the involvement in the community, he takes this practical task on and others follow along with him and it allows the disciples to preach and teach so they don't worry about that. It's being taken care of so they can focus on what they're called to do. And sometimes in the church, we sort of have this kind of in our mind, a sort of a hierarchy of values, like preaching and teaching is way up here and practical tasks and sweeping and vacuuming is way down here. Uh Uh-uh. We want all of those things to be happening, but every part needs to be working. We've talked about that before. But for Stephen's part, he brought peace to that early believing community by dealing with this task. The community was strengthened, it was healed, and it was restored as a place of peace. They were bonded in mission because that was being taken care of, and the other aspects could happen as well. They were bonded in mission. They were functioning as a group, as a total unit. Genuine care was expressed in the meeting of people's needs. And here's like maybe my most important one for me. New disciples, new people that were coming into this group. Those new believers entered into a healthy community and not a fractured one. Grace and peace was at the heart of the community once again. I don't know if you caught that about Stephen's character. But his is a character of wholeness, not perfection, but wholeness. He has a willingness here to be a servant in whatever role is asked of him. Because he wants to to be the person that God is using to advance the church and God's kingdom. He's good with whatever role. I love this saying. It's in your notes. You can complete it as I give it to you. I love this. Effective people are effective because they commit to habits that ineffective people do not commit to. Effective people are effective because they commit to habits that ineffective people do not commit to. Most of us want to be effective people in our relationship with God. Most of us would say, I want to desire God in a way that I can be effective for God. I don't want to just skate through spiritually. I would really like to be an effective servant of God. Like Stephen, I want to have an impact. I want to be a person that my life counts. It advances the kingdom. I have a part to play. I'm an essential person in terms of what what God is doing. If we look at the habits that are, that are like designed into the core of who Stephen is, one of the main things that we see right off the bat is he's a person full of faith. He's a person that's trusting God. He's a person that in the, in the in-between times, in the middle of things, he lets his faith happen. He trusts in God through that process. And he also is a person full of the Holy Spirit. I don't want us to miss this one. Because to be full of the Holy Spirit means is he, has a, he has a prayer connection with God. He is seeking God in a way that he says to God, I want to be empowered by you. I want your spirit, God, to be alive in me. I want to do whatever it takes to free your spirit in my life to be an effective person, a servant, no matter what role you ask me to take on, God, I want to not miss that. I want to be your person full of the Spirit of God, full of you, God. Empower me to do whatever you call on me to do. Wow. 
We, we, need is more ser- we need more servants. We need more Stevens in the church. If you look around you, they're here. It's you. It's me. It's being Stephen. It's being people of character who have healthy habits in their life. That is essential and core to us. My nephew, when he was in college, he went to school in Cincinnati. And he was a California kid. He drove his car back. It was an older car. He drove his car back to Cincinnati and, and got back there. And Cincinnati in the wintertime, is, uh, it can be a little rough and a little snowy and a little cold, a little colder than we get here. And he's back there. And uh, he noticed after a while that all of his shirts right about here started sort of fraying. And, and they started wearing out right in here. It wasn't gaining a lot of weight. I mean, he's a lot lighter than I am. But he was like, you know, he, he, you know, his shirts weren't doing good. And he couldn't figure out for the world of him what was going on with his shirts. And then he realized after he thought through what could be, ha- what could be happening. Well, here's the deal. He had this old car. And in order for it to start every day, when he'd come home from school, he'd open up the hood and he'd, undo the battery and he'd carry it into the house so that it would stay warm so that in the morning it wouldn't be too cold to start the car and he'd pick it up in the morning and he'd carry it back to the car and he'd rehook it up to the, to the car and the car would start up. And he realized, well, that's the deal. I'm carrying this car battery around and as I lay it on my stomach here, the, the battery acid and all that stuff that just connects to it, it's just rotting all my shirts out. And you know, we can get like that sometimes where we're carrying around this heavy weight, but it's disconnected from the power source. We're carrying around the heavy weight of what we think we have to deal with in life or what we should be doing for God, and, and, and we're not connected to the power source, which is God. It's only when we connect, get connected to the power source that we function the way God designed us to be. So turn to the person next to you and say, you're not the power source. Jesus is. So turn to them again and say, you're not the power source. Jesus is. Because he is. We're not the power source. You're not the power. I'm not the power source. Jesus is, and he's got plenty of power. It says in Revelation that Jesus said, I am, I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. If Jesus had said, I'm the, the Lamb to Kai, we would have thought he was like a fraternity brother. But he didn't say that, did he? <laughs> but those are Greek letters in the middle of the Greek alphabet. Which means that Jesus is the beginning and the end, and he's everything in the middle. And in your life and in mine, Jesus is the beginning and the end, and he's everything in the middle. And you and I, as we face whatever we're facing in our life right now, he's right in the middle with you and with me. He's right in the middle. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly who you are and what you can do and be and what you can become because he's the alpha and the omega. He's all of it. He's the whole deal. It doesn't matter where you are in the middle right now with whatever you're facing. God's in it with you. God cares desperately for who you are. And like Tina shared, it's about developing some of those habits in our life, like Stephen, that help us to know where our resource is. Our healthy habits are what? Connecting to God because he's the power source. That's the first and primary thing. 
We get connected up with God and then he begins to provide resources of wisdom and relationship and finances and a future and a hope because that's his design. That's who the church is meant to be. That's who you and I are meant to be because he's the power source. We're not, but he is the power source. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, thank you today that you are the power source for our life. You know right now, each of our lives, what we're in the middle of. And some of it is very unpleasant, very challenging, and can be overwhelming. And yet, God, you have the resources to see us through, to carry us through, not just to react, but so that you would grow us, develop us, deepen us, and our faith. Today, God, some of us need to say, God, it's too much right now. I got to let it go. I'm carrying a weight around trying to do it myself like that dead battery. I, I need to be connected to you, your power source. So just in this moment, my friend, why don't you just turn that to God and say, God, just would you just take that weight? I know it's there. Would you meet me with your power to help me through this? Would you, God, be the God of your Holy Spirit in my life right now to, re to restore me, re renew me, refresh me, empower me. Father, I pray that you would just have your hand on every person in here right now. You know that in the middle that we're in and you have the resources and power to meet the needs that we face. So Father, today, would you be real in our lives and come alongside and meet us in your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.